Good morning, Three Rivers. Greetings from the Kingston Highway campus. My name is Josh Pilgrim, and I'm the teaching pastor at Three Rivers. And today, uh, Mitch and I have switched locations. Uh, We want to do this occasionally to reinforce the fact that we are one church with two campuses. Um, And so we're still preaching the same text. Uh, Mitch will be preaching there, and I'm preaching here. Um, There might be a little difference, but there's a lot that's still the same. I mean, Mitch and I grew up in Silver Creek. We both went to Midway Elementary School. We were both graduates of Pepperell High School. We both graduated from Shorter College. We're both bald. We have beards. We're married to women named Jenny. And we have, each have a son named John. So there's a lot that's still the same this morning, but maybe a little different. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 14. Uh, we have been preaching through the book of Acts, and this has been such a great experience for us at the new campus. God was gracious to multiply our fellowship and, and on Palm Sunday of this year, um, several members of this church went to start a new campus, to multiply. We had more leaders, more people uh, that needed to be involved. And so Acts has been a great place for us as we've learned what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to start a church? So we looked at the early church um, to see how it was done. And so today we're in Acts chapter 14. Uh, this is a sobering chapter because it is all about suffering in the midst of ministry. It is all about tribulations and trials. And so I have entitled this sermon today, Through Many Dangers, Toils, and Snares. And that is the theme of the Apostle Paul's life. So we get to Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read this passage as we go today, but I do want to read one verse from verse 22. We'll start in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Those are all the places that he's just been. He returns to those cities. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And here it is. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Let that sit with you as we go to the Lord and pray. Father, would you speak to us today through your word? This morning, I pray for Mitch and our brothers and sisters at the Kingston Highway campus that you would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would increase in the knowledge of Christ. Father, I pray the same today here, that my message would not be with wise and persuasive words so that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but let the message today be a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith will not rest in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of Almighty God. Father, teach us today what it means to live the Christian life And where suffering plays in that life. And now, Father, I pray that you would speak. Speak, Lord. Lord, speak. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of my favorite movies, one of them being Inception. I love the movie Inception. And Inception is like... A lot of movies that I enjoy watching where the movie begins at the end. 
You know what I'm talking about? All right. So you start off and you see everything is in total disarray. The main character is is in this compromised position. Everything's bad. And you wonder, how did they get there? And then the movie goes all the way back to the beginning. And the entire movie is spent bringing you back to that place at the end, which they introduced at the beginning. What I want to do today is look at this passage the same way that those movies do that. And so we fast forward to verse 22. And here's the picture I want you to see. I want you to see a bloodied, bruised, broken man with rocks still in his ears. Blood coming down from his face. A few teeth are missing. His arm might be in a sling and he might even use a crutch to get get around. And he's looking at people that he has spent preaching to. And the Apostle Paul, broken and battered, bruised, bloodied, looks at these people and gives the biggest understatement of the first century. Men, women, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And we look at this verse and we wonder, how did he get here? What happened? And so now what we want to do is we're going to go all the way to the beginning of Acts chapter 14. And the main point of today, and we're going to see it time after time after time in the Apostle Paul's life, is that suffering, difficulty, trials, and tribulations are a normal and a necessary part of the Christian life. Not only is it normal... But for Paul, it is a necessary part of the Christian life because he says it is through many tribulations that we must go through to enter the kingdom of God. This is all throughout Scripture, and Paul's not the only one that taught it, but we see it in his writing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul says, If we are God's children, then we are also God's heirs. Joint heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. But this isn't Paul's idea. Jesus Himself talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus tells his disciples in John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And yet, there is a tendency in our own day to downplay the role of suffering and persecution in the Christian life. And if you don't believe me, just go to the local Christian bookstore and look and see what the majority of books are all about. It is not about suffering. It is about how to have your best life now. It's the power of I am. And I am is not Jesus I am. It's you, your power. 
It's about how you can reach the full potential of your life. And every day is a Friday, which ignores the fact that Jesus died on a Friday, right? Our culture is saturated with trying to make things better for us and ignores the reality of suffering in the Christian life. Growing up in church, I grew up in a Baptist church and I noticed that many times we would often sing the first, the second, and the fourth stanzas of hymns. How many of you had that same experience, right? Most of you. We, I never understood why we skipped the third verse. And a lot of times, the third verse in the hymn deals with suffering. Now, I don't know why people used to do that. If it was just some joke a worship leader did one Sunday and then everybody started doing it. I, I used to think that if, man, if, maybe if every time we sing a third verse, an angel loses its wings or something. But this happened with popular songs. Even Amazing Grace, we would do it, right? We love that song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We like singing about that. And we love verse 2, right? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Right? We love that it was, it was grace that, that brought me safe thus far. It was this, it's grace. We love grace, grace, grace. And then, what do we do? We just want to skip right to heaven, right? Let's just go to verse 4. When we've been there 10,000 years, but hold the, hold up just a second. Don't forget verse 3, because if you skip verse 3, you don't get to sing verse 4. And you already know what verse 3 is, right? Through many dangers, toils, and snares I've already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and it's grace that will lead me home. The point is that we will not enjoy 10,000 years in paradise until we first endure temporary pain and persecution here on the earth. What Paul is saying here in verse 22 is crucial for us to hear today. It is necessary for us to go through tribulations to get to the kingdom of God. In other words, those who miss the hardships of the cross will also miss the prizes of the kingdom. If you miss the hardships of the cross, you will also miss the prizes of the kingdom. One reason why the Galatian churches continue to exist, all of these churches in Galatia, one reason that they continue to exist, even though Paul was not with them for very long, they survived as long as they did because of the suffering that they encountered. The, church, the truth is that churches born in suffering are strong churches. Churches that suffer mean that there are converts who are forced to thrust themselves upon God in earnest desire for His help. And that just has a way of strengthening your faith and purifying your motives. And the truth is, we can avoid suffering if we want to. A lot of suffering. Not all of it. There's some things you can't avoid. But the truth is, we can avoid suffering. A lot of times we can avoid suffering out of disobedience. Or even out of convenience do you only choose what ministries you want to participate in based on how convenient it is for you and yet we read paul and we see many inconveniences in his ministry second corinthians 6 verses 4 and 5 he says as servants of god we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions hardships calamities beatings imprisonments riots labor sleepless nights and hunger and so as I was reading this passage and reading this chapter, which we're going to look at, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, why is it 
that we face such little persecution in America today? Why is it that there is such a wide gap between the suffering that Paul endured in the New Testament and the hardships that we endure today? Is it possible that the reason Paul was persecuted throughout his life was because he was constantly penetrating the front lines of the kingdom of darkness with the light of the gospel. He was constantly pushing the envelope. He was constantly in the marketplace. He was constantly engaging domains of society, constantly pushing the gospel in places where it had never been. And the world loves darkness more than they love the light because the light exposes their deeds. And when you start shining lights on people who love their corrupt deeds, they get very uncomfortable and the roaches scatter. Is it possible that the reason we face little to no persecution today is not because we live in a free country and not because of government legislation And not because of protection of religious liberties. Is it possible that the reason we face little to no persecution is rather because we hide in Christian bubbles of society, comfort and security, and we rarely ever engage the kingdom of darkness? I had to ask myself that question. I said, Lord, why is it that Paul suffers so much and I hardly am ever persecuted? And then it was so clear to me, I asked myself, Josh, when would you ever have a chance to be persecuted? You hang around Christians all week. You come to church and hang around Christians. You go to work and you work with Christians and you never engage the darkness. One of my favorite movies is Amazing Grace, right? William Wilberforce. I'm getting to the text, I promise. William Wilberforce was discouraged one night in the early 1790s after another defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in England. He was tired and frustrated, and one night he opened up his Bible, and he was just leafing through it, and a small piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. It was a letter that had been written to him by John Wesley, shortly before John Wesley had died. And Wilberforce read this letter from John Wesley, which was an encouragement to him. John Wesley said, William... Unless God, the divine power, has raised you up, I do not see how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might. And so in case you're afraid of suffering and persecution, be encouraged by the Apostle Paul that Paul did not go alone. That Jesus had promised from the very beginning that I will be with you always to the end of the age. And now let's get to the text here. We're going to see this pattern of dangers, toils, and snares throughout Paul's life and how he handled these struggles. So here we go. Acts 14, let's read verses 1 to 7. And we're going to see some dangers in Iconium. Some dangers in Iconium. Here we go. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. 
and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Here we see a pattern of Paul's ministry where Paul would first go into a city and the first group of people he would speak to were the Jews. He would start with people that knew the scriptures and he would always go to the synagogue first to preach. And then it never failed. The Jews would would come up against him. They would reject his message and then he would turn to the Gentiles. And we see this pattern here where he goes into the synagogue and there's always an initial harvest It just seems like when he preaches, there's always some people that hear the gospel and they believe. Verse 1 says that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then the opposition. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they're stirring things up. They're trying to stop Paul and Barnabas from accomplishing their mission. Now, what I love about Paul and Barnabas is that they don't leave immediately. Like if this was me and everybody was stirring things up, you might it might read like this. They stirred up everybody and they poisoned their minds and so Josh left because it was hard. But that's not what they do. It says, so the result of the opposition is... They remained for a long time. Got a lot of work to do, right? They stayed for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And it says that it was the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. It doesn't say that Paul and Barnabas bore witness to the word of Jesus' grace. It says that Jesus bore witness to the word of His grace. Which is really encouraging when you're up against opposition. These preachers were instruments in the hands of the Lord. And as they preached, it was the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Jesus testified to the authenticity of the message by allowing Paul and Barnabas to do miracles in the sight of these people to authenticate everything that they were doing. Can you imagine being so yielded to Christ that he would actually speak through you to bear witness to his own word? This is what we pray for, right? This is what I pray for when I speak every Sunday. Jesus, would you please speak through me and bear witness to the word of your grace so if these people don't believe me, they'll at least believe you. These signs and wonders were worked by Christ through the hands of these preachers. And so we see here that Jesus, even though Paul and Barnabas are boldly preaching, it is Jesus who is the source and the power and the minister and the healer. It is Jesus who is the power behind their ministry. The other thing that we see here is that it's not just miracles that save people. Faith is not based on miracles, but faith can be bolstered by miracles. The important thing is the word of His grace. 
If you only do miracles, but you're not preaching the word of his grace, then people are going to hang around for a while until the show ends and then they're gone. If people will not receive the word of his grace, then they're only going to show up for food. And if you don't believe me, just read John chapter six or do youth ministry, right? John chapter six, big pizza party, except it's not pizza, it's fish and bread. And 5,000 people follow Jesus and they get fed and Jesus feeds them. And everybody loves Jesus because everybody comes to church when there's a free meal. But the moment Jesus starts talking about his word and who he is and his identity and for people to follow him and to eat his flesh and drink his blood, all of a sudden, all those 5,000 people leave and there's only 12 disciples left and one of them is a devil. And Jesus looks at them and says, are you guys going to leave too? You see, it's not just miracles. It's not miracles that save, but it's miracles coming together with the word of Jesus's grace. We never we never split up the miracles of Jesus, the signs and wonders, the acts of mercy and the word. We always bring those together. And so they stay for a while. These guys are persevering. There is a theme of endurance all throughout this passage that they they stay as long as they can. But the city was divided. Some people sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And it says that they made a plan to mistreat them and to stone them. Luckily, this time, Paul and Barnabas get wind of it. They hear the rumor that, uh, guys, there's a stoning tomorrow and you're on the ticket. Right? It's your turn. And these guys, they're like, hey, we were born again, but we're not born yesterday, right? We're out of here. So they leave. They're not going to hang around. And so there's this question of how long do you stay in opposition? And I think these guys stay when they realize that more harm to the gospel would be done if they remained than if they stayed. It was better for the gospel to go forward for them to leave at this moment. And so when we face opposition... We need to carefully weigh what is best for the spread of the gospel. So we don't become defeated. We don't give up ministry when there's opposition. But we look forward to new fields, new opportunities to preach. And that's what they do in verse 7. It says they fled to the outside cities, the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the gospel. I think a good word here for us is don't be discouraged when you're opposed. When people just will not listen and it's just It's just not working. Sometimes it's okay for you to wipe the dust off of your feet and move on. There's a time for that. You have to hear the Lord and obey. These guys realize it's not going to get any better if we stay. Let's go find someone else who's more willing to listen to the message. Let's move on. And so we move on. There's these dangers of division there in in Iconium. Now we're going to see some toils, right? Some toils that happen in Lystra. Toils of spiritual delusion. Verse 8. Let's read. It says, Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. This sound familiar? Acts chapter 3, right? Lame man sitting on the steps of the temple. Real similar, right? Verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. He obviously looked like the head guy. 
And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, this is the local priest, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Five fingers, five toes, right? We bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. But he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good to you by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And it says in verse 18, even with those words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, Lystra is this... Frontier town, right? Wild, wild west of the Roman Empire. There aren't many Romans there. There's a lot of Lyconian hicks, right? That speak their own language. It's less civilized than all the other places that Paul has been to. And so Paul and Barnabas are struggling with the language barrier. They don't know the Lyconian dialect. And only the educated Jew would know Greek and Aramaic, which were Paul's natural languages. And here we see Paul... In verse 9, speaking. Now he's just speaking to whoever he can. And I, I, I want to remind us of how Paul was constantly engaging the marketplace. He was constantly engaging his domains. What was Paul's job? Remember? What did he do for a living? Made tents, right? He's a tent maker. Now why did he make tents? He probably was pretty good at it. It was a trade that he learned. This guy's... He's a pastor, right? He's a professional Pharisee. This guy knows the Bible. And yet he does something. He has a job that allows him to sell tents in the marketplace and to talk to people. And it says that while he's speaking, he's engaging his domain. He's just sharing the gospel with whoever will listen. This lame man hears him. And Paul looks at the man and sees that he has faith. This has happened to me before. I've been preaching in a church or a some type of event, and, and you can just see it on somebody's face as you're preaching the gospel. You can see the light come on. And you can just see faith coming in. They believe. It's like, bam, they're alive, right? We, God has done something miraculous in this person. Paul sees that in this lame man. And just like Peter and John at the gates of the temple, Paul looks at him and says, look at me. Get up. And he does. And everybody in the city loses their minds. Because they believe that now these gods have come down. You see, in, in Lystra, there was this superstition. You go back and read their history. They had this, apparently there was this legend that these two men came down, Zeus and Hermes, had visited their town once before. And none of the people gave them lodging. None of the people gave them hospitality. And because of that, Zeus and Hermes cursed the entire town. And so now they see these two men who are doing miraculous signs and they say, we don't want that to happen again, right? And so they want to make sure they get it right this time. And so they start to pull out the cows and the garlands. And the priest goes and prepares the sacrifices. And Paul and Barnabas, they don't know what's going on. They don't speak the Lyconian dialect. All they hear is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. And then they're like, well, that went well. 
They must they must really believe this stuff. This is great. We're having revival. And all of a sudden they look and realize that they get lifted up and they're, you know, they're on these thrones and they're putting crowns on them and they're starting the fire and they're about to offer a sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas realize, wait a minute, they're not here to worship God. They're here to worship us. Which makes me wonder, which would actually be worse on your mission trip? Getting stoned by the people you preach to or getting worshipped by the people that you preach to? Neither one of them are very good. These guys are not having a very successful mission trip at this point. And what we see here is this superstitious people and the tendency of people to deify men. The tendency of our culture to worship the messenger more than the message. The tendency of our people to elevate preachers and messengers more than they elevate God. So what do we see here? We see a crippled man's response to the word. This word produced faith and faith produces healing in this guy. And he's healed. And all of a sudden, all of these people in Lyconia start to worship Paul and Barnabas. And so what do they do? They come and they rip their clothes and they're like, guys, you can't do this. This is this is blasphemous. And again, we see the same principle that miracles don't produce faith. You would think that by seeing the miracle, they would worship the right God. But instead, they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. This crowd's response reveals one of our own weaknesses. Don't we find it easy to exalt the mess, the messenger instead of the message? We try to make men and women our security rather than God. Now, thankfully, Paul and Barnabas respond differently than King Herod did. Remember a few chapters ago when King Herod was was receiving praises from men. And when he would speak, the people would say the voice of a God and not a man. Remember what happened to Herod? He died. It's not a good theological word, but it's the point. He died. He's gone, right? God strikes him down. And Paul and Barnabas, they're not going to have this, right? Now, you would, there would be a temptation. A temptation to say, well, they're already worshiping us, so we'll just let them do it so that they'll listen to us, and then we'll turn them around later to worship the one true God. But that's not what Paul and Barnabas do. They realize that they must decrease. Jesus must increase. Herod received worship, but the apostles rejected it. And Paul responds, but he doesn't preach the same way that he does to Jewish people. Did you notice that when he speaks to these people, they don't have any knowledge of the Old Testament. They don't have any knowledge of Scripture. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a church. You can't just preach a sermon and say, oh, you know the story about David and Goliath, don't you? They don't know the story. So what does Paul do? Earlier in the synagogue, he had referred to the Old Testament. But Paul doesn't do that. His, his message is catered to his audience. And he brings up creation. And what, is, what happens here? He says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men like you. Don't elevate us. We bring you good news. That you should turn from your idolatry. He's preaching repentance. Turn from your vain things and repent and turn to the true living God. And he tells them that this God is the one who's the creator. Look at creation. It's the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is there. 
And He's given you common grace. He's given you food to eat. He's given you rain from heaven. He has satisfied your hearts. He's been good to you. And now I'm telling you, this is the one true God. Repent. Now the message was good up to this point. But he doesn't get any further because at this point the mob has started. Like He doesn't even get to the point about Jesus because Paul is suddenly a God to be worshipped. And then they're trying to stone him. We're going to read here in just a minute that he's about to get stoned because there's some Jews who come from Antioch and Iconium to stir things up. A mob has been defined as a society of people voluntarily bereaving themselves of reason. That's what happens here. These people lose their minds. And just like the crowds in Jesus' day, they go from one moment wanting to worship Paul to the next moment wanting to stone him. Just like the crowds in Jesus' day. One week earlier were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the next week they're saying, crucify him. Paul and Barnabas continue to press on, constantly facing opposition. This is not a very successful mission trip. Put yourself in their sandals for just a minute. Can you imagine you go on a mission trip and the first place you go to, uh, the people try to kill you. And the second place you go to, the people try to worship you. And imagine you have to go back to your home church and explain and show slides on the PowerPoint. Here they are bowing down to us. Here's the guys grabbing rocks to stone us. I can imagine they were pretty discouraged at this point, right? This is hard. We've seen dangers and toils and now there's snares as outside of Derby. Because look at verse 19. Outside of Lystra, it says the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul to the point where he's knocked out because they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But when the disciples gathered about him, (laughs) he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Go back here. Verse 19 tells us that these Jews come and they stone Paul. Right? It's as if the Lord is letting Paul go through what he allowed Paul to see in Stephen's life. Except for some reason, Paul is allowed to live. He's stoned. These people pick up stones big enough to crush your skull, but big enough to get some velocity on it. And they would throw rocks until the guy would stop moving. To the point where Paul is knocked out and they drag him out of the city. Now, Don't just focus on Paul's physical abuse. Imagine the emotional humiliation of being stoned in front of the disciples that you've made in this city. Because what does it say in verse 20? Who gathered around Paul? When the disciples. Which disciples? The disciples that Paul and Barnabas had made. So we're seeing some... Some success here. Paul's making disciples. He's doing it. And these people, their first experience of Christianity is to see their leader get stoned to death. 
And it says they're gathered around him and they're looking at him. And they're like, now what do we do? That didn't work out well. And then all of a sudden, one of them looks down and says, I think he's moving. Which is a great thing to hear at your funeral, right? I think he's moving. He's breathing. And all of a sudden, one of Paul's eyes pop open. He sits up. He gets up. Dusts himself off. Probably got a limp. Head's bleeding. Probably got a few teeth missing. And he says, which way is Lystra? I'm going back. He starts to walk. And the disciples are like, Paul, you're going the wrong way. I have to turn him around. He starts to go back into the city. That blows my mind. Because if this is Josh's story, it's going to say they stoned Josh. He wasn't dead. So the disciples took him to the hospital. Right? And then he went home on sabbatical for about eight years. But no, he goes back into the city. This is devotion in the midst of persecution and opposition. He keeps marching forward. And the next day he goes to Derby. And then it says they made many disciples. Many. With a black eye and missing teeth and a broke arm. Verse 21, they preached the gospel and made many disciples. What I love about Paul is this unwavering devotion to one thing. One thing I do. He made disciples. That was the great commission. It was to make disciples. Wherever he went, make disciples. And I would say that that is the same thing that all of us have been commissioned to do. Jesus told us one command when he left. Make Disciples. Doesn't matter if you're going to work, if you're going to the grocery store, if you're going to school. Make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So church, are we going to follow Paul's example? Are you willing today to submit to the authority of Christ? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Are you willing to obey his plan to make disciples of all nations? Are you willing to depend on His presence because He said He would be with you always to the end of the age? One thing I do, and man, that just simplifies my life because if I know, I don't have to get distracted about what my career is going to be or my major or who I marry. All of those things fit into the one goal of making disciples. I can do that. I can do that. They made disciples. But here's the point I want to make. you got these disciples gathered around Paul. And they see him get up and go back into that city. I want to ask you a quick question. What do you think that did to the faith of those disciples? Watching their leader get nearly stoned to death and then go back. You think that encouraged them? Now here's the theological kick in the gut. If Paul says that tribulations are a necessary part of entering the kingdom of God, then it may also be necessary that part of discipleship is that those whom you disciple will need to see you suffer well. If you're going to make disciples, it may mean 
that the people you disciple may need to watch you suffer well. So I want to ask you a question. What part of persecution and suffering plays in your teaching and discipleship? Do you say the same thing that that Paul told in verse 22? He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. And how is he strengthening them? He was encouraging them to continue in the faith. Even if you get stoned, don't quit. Keep going. Because it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The truth is that believers will suffer persecution. And new converts, new Christians must be warned lest they become discouraged and fall away when persecution strikes. If you tell people that Jesus just came to make your life rosy and to give you, has a wonderful plan for your life and everything's going to be nice, at the first moment of suffering, those people may fall away from the faith because we don't prepare them well for suffering. If we tell them the truth ahead of time, then it will, it will prepare them mentally and emotionally and spiritually to know that tribulation is a necessary part of entering the kingdom. And so we've got to be able to see God's redemptive purposes in suffering. Peter says that suffering refines our faith. 1 Peter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Some of you might be going through something very difficult right now because God is refining you. That, that, that your dross would be consumed and your faith would be refined. He may not just be refining your faith, though. Sometimes suffering tests our faith, which is from James chapter one, verse two. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God may be testing you. To see if you're going to hold up. And here's the deal with a test. If you don't pass a test in school, guess what you have to do? You've got to take it again. That's why we count it joy. This is my chance to prove my faith in this time of testing. Go back to that circle of disciples. Who's in that circle? Do we know any of them? I think we do. Barnabas is there, but there's some others that were from Lystra. There's this old lady named Lois there, grandmother. And her daughter, Eunice. And Eunice had a son named Timothy. It's a good chance Timothy was standing in that circle watching Paul being stoned. And it was to Timothy that Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you go to 2 Timothy, we don't have time right now, but you're going to see in that passage that persecution, Paul says, is not only necessary, but it's inevitable. And so then he later tells him to rest in the grace of Jesus. This is the same passage that says later, trust in the sufficiency of Scripture and teach suffering is a basic part of discipleship. 
We rest in Jesus' grace. It's through, by grace He's led me safe thus far. It's grace that will get me home. It's the sufficiency of the Word of God, even in the midst of suffering, that sustains us. So what did they do? We've seen dangers, toils, and snares. Verse 23, they go back to all of these cities that they've just been to, making disciples. And when you make disciples in society, what is the byproduct? This is our DNA. You preach the gospel of the kingdom, you make disciples, they are in society, and what comes up out of society? Church. And guess what you need when you have a church? You need leadership. So verse 23 They go back and it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with fasting and praying, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They're strengthening disciples, making disciples, planting churches, organizing churches. You got to organize it too. You got to have leadership. Got to have elders, pastors. The local church is an organism and an organization, right? And an organism that's not organized is going to die. So they appoint elders. And then then we have the first missionary conference, right? Verse 24. They passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had first been sent out. Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Verse 27. Then the missionary conference starts. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. I love this missionary conference. They have the privilege of sharing what Jesus had done through them. This is the first missionary conference. This is the conference where the missionaries come With a pretty big doctor's bill, right? They've gone through a lot. And yet they don't talk about their suffering. They say all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're not focused on their failures. They're focused on where God has allowed them to succeed. It's as if they assumed opposition. They assumed persecution. They assumed tribulation. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think some baseline things that we can do. Number one is to engage the domains of darkness where we live. Ask yourself, where can I push the envelope a little bit? Not being a jerk. We don't go out looking for persecution. Because if you're shining light in dark places, you won't have to look for persecution. It'll find you. But ask yourself the question, am I doing anything in my life that's taking a risk? Am I doing anything to push the envelope and to engage on the front lines? Something else it might mean for us to do, to continue to do, is to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters right now who are serving in difficult parts of the world. We have people from our own fellowship that are all around the world in dangerous places ministering. And it is hard. And they get discouraged. And so they need for us to pray for them. To send them encouraging letters. To to rejoice with them in victories. And to encourage them in difficulty. 
keep in mind that the gospel spreads through cities. Paul and Barnabas weren't going out to the rural towns. They were going to the big cities because culture flows out of big cities. So they started in the big cities and that's where they planted the churches. And so engage your city. Ask yourself, how can I get involved somehow in the community here in Roman Floyd County? Know your audience. You may not be able to share Bible verses all the time with people who've never been to church before. You may have to engage them in their own worldview and try to figure out how to bring in the gospel. Paul quotes the Old Testament to Jews, but he uses general revelation to Gentiles. The point is, know your audience. Another application, I think, is merely winning people to the Lord through evangelism only fulfills like one third of the Great Commission. <laughs> Got to make disciples, strengthen those disciples, teach them to make more disciples. Discipleship is the priority. And this this next thought convicted me. Paul did all of this. Without an airplane, a smartphone, or Facebook. Paul did everything he did without modern means of communication and transportation. And yet the truth is here. That God can do more with a man without a cell phone, without, without Facebook, and without an airplane. He can do more with him, with the Spirit of God, than a church of a thousand people can do. With all of the means of technology available to us without the Holy Spirit. And so let it not be said of us, Three Rivers, that others have done so much with so little, while we have done so little with so much. Are you going to endure to the end? Jesus said that whoever endures to the end will be saved. There was a race in the Olympics, the Greek Olympics, the original Olympics. It was a very unique race. Because the winner was not the runner who finished first. It was the runner who finished with his torch still Lit. I want to run my race all the way with my flame still burning for Christ at the end. Because the truth is, if you're going to imitate Paul, you're also imitating Jesus. You thought about this? Even Jesus did not escape tribulation. Jesus had told Paul, Paul, follow me and I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my name. And this morning, Jesus looks at every member of Three Rivers and says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me, follow him this morning, follow him into the garden of Gethsemane, where he went with his three closest friends and they all fell asleep during the prayer meeting and they all deserted him. Follow Jesus there and know what it means to to endure tribulation, to endure desertion. And then follow him a little further into the garden of betrayal when all of your friends turn away and one of your closest friends betrays you with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver and hands you over to wicked men. And yet even in that garden, the, Jesus stayed true to the Father's mission. He endured and He said, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. Let this bitter cup pass from me, but I'm willing to drink it. Not my will, but Your will be done. Take your cross and follow Jesus into the courtroom where he was unjustly tried by a corrupt government. Where the government was against him. Follow Jesus there. 
And you will find that he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Follow Jesus outside of there where his own best friend denied him three times. And remember Paul's words that through tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But follow him a little further down the road where people are mocking him. And he's hearing all of these people mock him and scorn him and rebuke him. And yet he continues to carry the cross. Think back to Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham's ram got his horns caught in a thicket of thorns. And then look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, who finds himself with a crown of thorns on his own head. Physical pain, public humiliation. And yet follow him further up the road to the hill of Golgotha. Take your cross and follow him there where he's crucified and associated with two thieves. And yet even there receives one of them into paradise. Even on the cross looks down and says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Follow Jesus all the way to the end, to the last breath, where he says three words. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. And then look at the Apostle Paul, who does the same exact thing with Timothy. Timothy, I'm in prison. I'm about to die. My head is about to go on the chopping block. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. And there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Not just for me, but for all those who love His appearing. Are you looking forward to that day when we can finally sing? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But what about until then? Because we're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. We're still singing, verse 3. We're still singing through many dangers, toils, and snares I've already come. But it was grace that led me safe thus far. It's grace that will lead me home. Can we say this morning with Horatio Spafford, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, whether trials or persecutions or dangers, nothing in heaven and earth or under the earth will separate you from the love of Christ, which is in Christ. And so I will leave you, church, with the words that John Wesley gave to William Wilberforce. Unless God has raised you up for this thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, three rivers, who can be against you? Are all of the world stronger than God? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so be not weary in well-doing. Go in the name of God and in the power of his mind. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word. Give us grace now to obey. Give us grace to take up our own cross and to follow you no matter the cost. Father, I pray right now for brothers and sisters all around the world in our in our country, 
But all around the world, in East Asia today, and in Central Asia, who are suffering for the gospel's sake, who are on the front lines of missions, and who are discouraged. Father, I pray for them today that You would sustain them in Your grace, that You would sustain their faith, and that You would give them strength to carry on. Father, I pray this morning for the people of Three Rivers, both campuses, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened in the knowledge of Jesus, that we would know the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Oh, Father, would You give us courage and faith to endure? Would You help us to run our race well, to fight our faith, to fight our fight well? To finish our course well. To be faithful to the end. Sustain us, we pray. Now, Father, as we worship you, I pray that out of worship would flow obedience. Out of our singing would flow service. And that you would be greatly glorified in the lives of your people as we take the gospel to the nations for Jesus' glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.